have you ever faced a deadline that you struggled to meet? Maybe it was a paper or a project in school, an application, a FAFSA deadline. Um, there's all kinds of things. I was there this week with today's sermon. So on, on Friday, Mitch comes in. And there I was. I had all my research, all my ideas. As you can see, it's spread out all over the table. And as you can see the computer screen, which is today's sermon, do you see how blank it is? And Mitch plops down in that seat. And again, he comes in on Fridays. And so as he's talking to me, I can feel the tension rising in my body because I'm like, uh, ouch, ouch. Like, I don't have my sermon done. Ouch. And then he says something absolutely beautiful to me. He says, Max, I come in on Thursdays to set up the live stream. I could have kissed him. What beautiful good news I had. It was actually Thursday. I don't know if you've ever had a reversal of fortune. Okay. Uh, in college, I once submitted a paper and I got a D minus on the paper. I got it back D as in David, not B as in better. D as in David minus. And that was going to take my A in that class all the way to Seasville. And I went to the professor and he said, I'll tell you what, if you redo the paper, I'll give you a new grade. <gasps> Reversal of fortune. Uh, years ago, when the kids were little, I went to, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do my taxes this year. I'm going to have an accountant do my taxes. What business do I have? I just went to college. What do I know? Like, and so, thank God. I, I go to the accountant and I had had it already done. I had all the taxes filled out because, you know, I wasn't going to have him do all the work. I was going to make sure it was done properly. So I presented him all this paperwork and I had a tax refund of $1,200. And he starts asking me questions, and he starts calculating on the calculator. And when he was all done, he said, Mr. Vanderpool, you have a refund coming to you of $5,400. Best $75 accountant fee I've ever spent, <laughs> ever spent in my entire life. Today, I want to tell you the gospel. I want to announce the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were here last week, you know that we human beings need to hear some good news. We do. The human race, we're sinners. And if you don't like that term, we're selfish. Uh, we have a proclivity to walk away from God and God's ways. Um, we tend to sin and rebel. And if you don't believe that, just have kids. <laughs> just have kids. These wonderful little babies turn into dragons <laughs> that spit fire and slam their doors and say, no one in this family understands me. I'm just saying hypothetically, this can happen. <laughs> this can happen, okay? Now, we need this good news because we need to be saved from this mess. And so in announcing the good news, it means that God's the hero, God's the agent, God gets all the credit. And a really good place to see the good news is the book of Romans. Now, I think Romans is a complicated book. 
I tend to stay in the Gospels in my preaching because I like it simple. Uh, and I find Jesus simple in a lot of ways. Not easy, but simple. <laughs> and Paul is complicated and uses big words, but really the book of Romans is a book about the Gospel. And in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is laying out how bad things are for human beings. And he spells it out in great detail. And it's bad news. We're sinners. We're all doomed. We're all going to die. Whoa! And it's just bad stuff. And then he pivots in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 28. And that's where I want to be today. So if you brought a paper Bible, you can open it up. Romans chapter 3. I'll have the verses on the big screen as we go through them. But I want, to, uh, I want to chunk this away, but I want to read the whole passage first, and then we'll come back to it. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God with undeserved kindness, declares that we're righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right when God, uh, with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we're made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. So the first verse here has two very important words, but... Now, so let me explain this theologically. I go to the doctor and he says to me, Mr. Vanderpool, I see that you love kayaking and hanging out at the lake in the summers. You have skin cancer, but it's treatable and you'll fully recover. Or uh, a few years ago, the plane went down in the Hudson River, but everyone lived. But, this but is a powerful but, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, Lloyd says this, but now, there are no more wonderful wor words in the whole of scripture than just those two words. We're all under this condemnation. We're all under the wrath of God. We can never produce a righteousness that can stand up to God's searching glance and examination and investigation. We're all together hopeless. Are you clear about that? If you are, you're ready to rejoice in these two words, but now. Martin Luther's realization about this passage, his big ding light bulb moment in the 1500s was, whoa, we're not made righteous by what we do. We're made righteous by what Jesus did. And it was like mind blown. And then it started the whole Protestant Reformation. It's in part why you're sitting here today. <laughs> okay. And then Paul continues, Romans 3.22. He says, we are made right with God. Now, there's 
Three words I want to draw out in this passage. And this is the first of three important words. This word, made right. It's imagery from a courtroom when someone's declared acquitted. They're declared innocent. Doesn't matter whether they really did it or not. When the court declares you innocent, legally, you're innocent. You can't be put in jail, right? And so that's the imagery behind this. And the Greek word used there is this word, dikaesune. And it just means acquitted. Uh, Old-fashioned preachers will uh, uh, use this because this word is sometimes translated justified. And they'll say, it's just as if I never sinned, right? The old preachers love that, okay? But Paul continues. And he says, this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. So there, Paul is saying, really, there's no difference between all the people. See, the Jews thought, oh, we're, you know, we got a leg up over everyone because we're God's special people. We've got this covenant promise. We've come from the seed of Abraham. And Paul, in this letter and so many other places, is like, no, 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 it's not enough. And I don't know about you, but Americans, we tend to be this way sometimes. We're Americans, you know. Woo, we're better than the rest of the world. And sometimes in some places in this country, it's like, well, we got a religious heritage going all the way to Jonathan Edwards. Aren't we great? We make the world better. And again, Paul would say, no, it's, it's bunk. It doesn't, it's not high enough. It's not enough. Everybody is kind of washed away in this sin and rebellion. And of course, American churchgoers over time without thinking because they've just been going to church and praying and showing up at the food pantry. They know in their heads that God saves sinners, but they get to a point where they think of sinners as people out there. It just happens over time. And they forget the power of what really happened when God sent his son. Paul continues in Romans chapter, uh, Romans verse, chapter 3, verse 24. Yet God in his grace, makes us right. There's that first word again. And then the second word. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of death. And this second word has to do with being redeemed. Um, it has its roots in the Old Testament. So when the Israelites had left slavery in Egypt, God redeemed them. He freed them. Same word used in the Greek Septuagint, uh, which is a translation of the Old Testament, okay? And that word is this word, latruo, redeem, okay? Liberation through payment. And Paul does this and he builds to this third word. So there's three different kind of word pictures. The first is courtroom acquittal. The second picture is, so when Paul's talking about, well, what has Christ done? The first picture is this, he's declared you innocent. The second word picture is he set you free from something. And in Paul's thinking, you're set free from the power of sin and death and what that brings in your life. And the third word picture is this word here. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And this sacrifice for sin is uh, halasmos, uh, halasmos, which means uh, mercy seat or atonement cover. Uh, it's where we get the English word propitiation. That's a funny word. Propitiation? What kind of word is that? You done propitiated something? Like, I, I don't even know what that is, okay? But I want to explain it, okay? So this word has its roots all the way back to the Old Testament, okay? The mercy seat was 
this part of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't, want the, don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, go back and watch Indiana Jones, okay? So it's in the first movie, uh, but this is the thing that was made to house on the inside the two stone tablets that were the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron uh, that budded, and then a golden pot of manna. And these three things were in there, and it had this covering. This covering was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And it was called that because of something that would happen once a year in the rhythm of Hebrew Jewish life. And that's from Leviticus chapter 16. So once a year, the high priest would go in to the tabernacle and later the temple to this place where that ark was, and he would sprinkle blood on the top of it. And that blood was like a covering, just like the, the uh, mercy seat itself was a covering. And I don't know if you've connected the dots, but the things that are inside here that are covered and then covered by blood are actually symbols of our rebellion. The Ten Commandments, how are we doing with that one? The rod is a symbol of God's leadership. Again, trusting God, letting God lead, how are we doing with that one? The bowl of manna is a symbol that God provides. How are we doing with trusting to God for God to provide, right? So all of those things inside are symbols of the way that we've just rebelled and not trusted God at all. And it's covered by this. And then the priest comes in once a year and covers it with blood. And what, what the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers are saying is, then it's like God doesn't see the rebellion anymore. And that's what happens. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews spells it out, and he puts it this way. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He's entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle, which wasn't made with human hands or is part of the created world. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place and secured our redemption forever. What, what the writer is saying here is that Jesus is the ultimate mercy seat. He's the ultimate place of atonement. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And then we get to the last part of this section in Romans chapter 3. For he was looking ahead, for he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe. Can we boast that we've done anything? Pfft, no. Our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. Uh, this little section here is what got Martin Luther, uh, he called this the whole chief point of the Bible. Um, and so there's these three important words. Word picture of being acquitted. Word picture of being redeemed or freed from something. Word picture of somebody substituting or taking, a, taking your place. And that's where I want to kind of camp out in just a minute. When we say that we believe and that we have faith, what we're really saying is we've come to a point where we're not resting on anything in us to make us right with God anymore. That what Jesus did is enough. 
And I've known Christians for all stages and walks of life, and they struggle with this their whole lives. Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough for my mom and dad? Am I enough for my wife and kids? Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Ah, and in one sense, the answer in the Bible is no. But the good news is Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And when you get to that point, you have a settled confidence. And you're no longer afraid that God's out to zap you anymore or punish you because it changes the way you see God because now you're an adopted son and daughter with all the rights that you get and privileges that you get, okay? So let me ask a few questions in light of what Paul has to say in Romans chapter three, and I'll put the first question up. Are you allowing the law to make you aware of your sin? One of the things we Americans struggle with is we like to say, well, you know, yeah, the Bible says a bunch of stuff in there, but like I know in my heart that... <laughs> And that's kind of how we like to roll. But if God made everything, he kind of gets a say in what's up and down. Like, I don't always like it, but he's in charge if he made it all, right? So are you allowing the law to make you aware of, of your sin? And then secondly, are you trying to justify yourself? And again, we Americans, the way we do that is we tend to do the sliding scale. Well, I'm not near as bad as my cousin Nancy. Holy cow. She's like five boyfriends this year. She binge streaks on the weekends. She is so going to hell. Like, I am not like my cousin Nancy, thank God. Remember that moment where the two people go into the temple and the one guy goes in who's got his act together and doing everything right and he says, thank God I'm not like this person over there. And then the other guy comes in who's doing everything wrong during the week, but his attitude is, I got nothing. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, who leaves the temple justified? It wasn't the guy doing all the right things. It was, right, okay? So, and then the last question is this. According to the Apostle Paul, you're either justified or condemned. There's no middle ground. Where are you these days? Where are you these days? There are three ways that you can respond to the gospel. Uh, these are three ways I've noticed Americans tend to do. So the first, the first way you can respond to the gospel is you reject God by rejecting his law. And this is most commonly verbalized by just follow your heart, live your truth, like don't let anybody tell you how to live your life, like, you know, just be whatever is on the inside, express that on the outside, and boom, there you are. That's it. That's great. Um, and in a sense, you're rejecting the gospel. You don't need, I mean, you've got it all together. It's all in here. You just need to pull it out. What do you need God for? And so in a very real sense, you're rejecting the gospel and you're rejecting uh, God. The second way to respond to the gospel is the religious way. You reject God by embracing and trying to obey the law. So in other words, over time, you begin to see yourself as genuinely better than everyone else because... You know, you volunteer at the food pantry, you lead worship, you're helping with the women's auxiliary. We don't have one, but it seems really cool. <laughs> okay? And, and so that's the religious way to reject the gospel. Churches are full of these kind of people all over the United States. And the last way is to just accept God and accept the gospel. And you live out the rest of your life in gratitude and awe of what God's done for you.
the best way I know how to explain this is actually from a moment in history. So there's this guy who is a Catholic priest in, of all places, Poland. Unfortunately for him, he was a Catholic priest in Poland in the 1930s. Not a good time to be living in Poland. For those of you that are like, I don't understand. History, it's like a thing. Uh, and so Maximilian Kolbe was arrested because he was a bit of a troublemaker. And he was sent to the Nazi concentration camp, Auschwitz. Like, they sent him there. So here he is, a Catholic priest among bunkhouse after bunkhouse after bunkhouse of Jews. And he's like, does anyone, you know, I'll take confession now. Like, you know, and he just looked for ways to, to serve, right? And the one Catholic priest among all these Jews in Auschwitz. Well, the Nazi commanders had this rule that if anyone were to escape from a particular bunkhouse, they would select 10 men from that bunkhouse and those 10 men would be killed. And that was just, uh, what do they call it? Negative reinforcement, right? So that was a thing to kind of keep people in the camp. Well, a guy in Kolbe's bunkhouse escaped. And so they pull 10 guys. And one of the 10 guys that they pull is this man here, uh, Franziskif uh, Gajovnicek. That's how you say that, Gajovnicek. Got to love these Polish names. Looking at that, that is not Gajovnicek. But it is. So he's pulled with these 10 guys, and he has this moment of blubbering. And he's like, I've got a wife and kids, and ah, you know, I, can't, I can't be in this line. And Maximilian Kolbe does something unexpected. He steps forward, and he says to the Nazi commandants, I'll take his place. And they let him. Only time it, like, they let him. Only time it ever happened at Auschwitz. And so they kill Maximilian Kolbe, and this guy goes on and lives. I think he lived all the way to 1995. Lived a long life. This is what he wrote about that moment. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live. And someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? I, I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian. I was saved. And I owe to him the fact that I could tell you all of this. The news quickly spread all around the camp. It was the first and last time that such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. For a long time, I felt, I felt remorse when I thought of Maximilian. By allowing myself to be saved, I had signed his death warrant. But, but now in reflection, I understood that a man like him could not have done otherwise. Perhaps he thought that as a priest, his place was beside the condemned men to help them keep hope. In fact, he was with them to the very last. That's a picture in history of what God did for us. That's why churches have crosses. In Catholic churches, he's still on there. In Protestant churches, they're empty, but that's why we all have crosses. It's a tangible, there it is. 
he traded places with us. And it, and it starts with a simple decision. I'm going to ask our musicians to make their way up front. So the gospel is the good news of what God has done. It's not the good news of how you need to get your act together. It's not the good news of how you need to go to church more. <laughs> it's not the good news of any kind of self-improvement that you've got going on in your life. The, the gospel is the good news of what God has done, period. And you and I get to get in on it because he didn't stay on the cross. They took him down dead. He was in that tomb. And we all, we're all convinced. I'm convinced he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. So Jesus lived the life that I should live and died the death that I deserve. That's the heart of the gospel. I don't always talk about this in this kind of explicit way in this congregation. So those of you that are long-termers at Generations, you're like, well, I haven't heard something like this in a long, long time. Well, good. It's a good reminder, right, that what Jesus did is enough. So let it be enough. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of what you've done. You're the hero. You're the agent. You've done it all. Father, we, we want to be grateful this week for the rest of our lives for what you have done on our behalf. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that maybe have been on the fence or you've had a fits and starts with organized religion, I just want to tell you that responding to the gospel always starts with just a basic decision. It's a decision that you decide, oh, what Jesus did is enough. And if it's enough for God, it's enough for me.